This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. My name is Nicholas Miller. I'm a professor at Andrews University in the seminary in the church history department. And I'm also a lawyer uh, by training. I have a strong interest in church and state, as well as the development of Adventist theology. And I also have a strong interest in creation and evolution. I'm not a scientist. I was, uh, did some pre-med studies in my undergraduate days, so have some basic grasp of uh, biology and chemistry and done some reading and geology and other things. But as a lawyer, I was involved in discussions and in writing over origins under the American Constitution. In other words, we're not supposed to teach the Bible in public school classrooms. Does that mean we have to teach atheistic evolution? Are there alternatives to that? Can we talk about intelligent design? And uh, I've published some articles and done some writing on those questions. And today, I want to talk about this question more in terms of our church and challenges to our uh, church's understanding about the question of creation. Could God have created in ways other than six or seven literal days? Uh, What do we say to other Christians who believe in theistic evolution? What do we say to Adventists uh, who are starting to believe in theistic evolution? Unfortunately, in some of our own schools, the controversy over the last two or three years uh, with evolution being taught, uh, not just taught about, because I don't think most people have a problem with that. If you're going to be an intelligent adult in today's world, you need to know about evolution, what its claims are, what the scientific evidence seems to be to support it. We should be teaching that in our schools, but we shouldn't be teaching that it's true, and that's the way it really happened. At least that's my conviction because of my understanding of the Bible. Um, And yet this is happening in some places. How do we deal with this as a church? Uh, Is this something there can be compromise on? Uh, Is this something that lines need to be drawn on? And if we're going to draw lines, how should those lines be drawn? And... uh, I'm going to suggest that there's two ditches on this. This is an ongoing theme of this this study that I'm doing on the reformers in church history, is that our church has been impacted by larger influences in the Christian community, especially in the 20th century, the influence of liberalism on one hand, but also the influence of fundamentalism on the other hand. Fundamentalism is taking the Bible too strictly, trying to hold it to a too perfect a standard. And in many ways, both extremes can get you into trouble. And understanding the kind of middle ground that Adventism holds, Adventism at its roots and its heritage is neither liberal or fundamentalistic. Uh, It occupies a biblical uh, balanced middle ground. And uh, I want to share that with you today. But before we start uh, the next lecture, won't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this special time we have in Seattle with these many uh, faithful believers and followers of you who are wanting to learn more about your word and about the history of our church more deeply. Bless our time together. May your Holy Spirit be among us. May we learn to appreciate more fully your creation as well as your new creation and recreation in our lives. 
For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But this topic of creation offers risks on both sides. There's a risk of being too liberal and open, but there's a risk of becoming fundamentalistic and creed-like, setting down thought tests in ways that God wouldn't have us do, and navigating carefully uh, through the middle ground on this will be helped by looking at some history. This is a brief overview of where we've come from and of where we're going. We've just finished talking about the great controversy theme. Uh, Next, tomorrow morning, we'll talk about religious liberty, one of my favorite topics because of my background in the law. Liberty and morality. Where do we have the separation of church and state and freedom, but where can we draw boundaries in society? Just because we're in favor of religious freedom and the separation of church and state, does that mean we have to vote for the legalization of smoking marijuana and of supporting gay marriage and abortion and pornography? Or is there some way of understanding these issues and also uh, supporting freedom, uh, but also uh, regulating some of these other moral matters? The theme text that I've been using is that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that Paul talks about. These are people that are dead, as, as Paul is writing in the book of Hebrews, and yet they still speak to us, not obviously uh, through actual voices, but through their writings. And as Christians, we need to be in dialogue in Bible study with each other, but also with the part of the church that just doesn't happen to be alive now. And it's not that we use the reformers as authorities for truth, but we use them as part of the discussion we have as witnesses to uh, show our own shortcomings, blind spots, and prejudices. And this can help us see where we've been impacted by our own society. If anyone has questions, and it seems we have, uh, oh, I do have a few text message questions from the last session. I may have to deal with that at the end of of this one. So I have my cell phone number up there if you want to text me some some questions, and I'll try to get to those at the end. We'll also have a a roving mic for a few minutes. And I think we'll have a few more minutes at the end of this one um, for those who, who want to have a longer question and answer period. So, I've talked about my own experience uh, becoming, having a fuller conversion as a teenager at 16 or 17 and uh, going to school in Southern California, a conservative, moderately conservative home and a more liberal cultural environment, having to make your way in a church where there's all sorts of magazines, one on, some on one side that are very liberal, others that are very firmly conservative, which brand of Adventism is for me, where do I follow, how do I read the Bible, what community do I read it in? Um, Why should origins matter to teenagers? Well, if you believe in materialistic evolution, if it's true, if there is no God, if we're all just a random combination of molecules and atoms then you, the random combination of molecules and atoms that make up you, are no more inherently important and valuable than the random molecules and atoms that make up the chair that you're sitting on, or the rock that's lying on the ground outside. And you really have no moral basis to condemn the shooting that took place in Connecticut a week or two ago. It was just somebody doing what they do uh, to other people's, and it doesn't matter if you feel badly about it. There's no objective basis for saying it was any more wrong or any more right. People can be used and abused for any 
and all purposes. And if you don't believe that materialistic evolution can lead to this, we have the examples of history. The greatest um, number of deaths have occurred in the 20th century. You know, people talk about the wars of religion, that religion has caused much suffering and death. And it has, unfortunately. Because of human nature, people will take the best things that we have, like truths about God and religion, and use them to justify our worst behaviors. But the fact of the matter is, is that the 20th century was sort of the century without religion. Most places in the world had a kind of separation of church and state or separated their governments from uh, uh, religion. And there were more people killed by governments and ideology in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. You combine fascism and communism and an aggressive, sometimes aggressive capitalism, more people died in the names of those ideologies and not religion in the 20th century than any other time combined. I think this is a meaningful response to some of the new atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens and others who claim that religion is the root of all evil. Well, not in the 20th century. And in the 20th century, we saw that people, what they did without the constraints of religion and morality. And it was brutal. And I'd like to point out that both communism and fascism had as their ideological roots and their biological understandings uh, materialistic evolution. And indeed, we see that that system of thought at least aided them and supported them in carrying out the most inhuman acts against other human beings. But that's not what we're usually facing in the church. Maybe when we're talking to the Hitchens and the Dawkins of the world, we can, uh, uh, we're talking about materialistic evolution. But there's another kind of evolution that Christians want to talk about. And they say, no, of course materialistic evolution isn't correct. We believe in a theistic evolution, that God, isn't God all-powerful? Couldn't he choose to create in a variety of ways? And maybe God, maybe it's even, even more impressive kind of creation if God can create a whole system that from scratch will gradually unfold and seem as appear as though it's creating itself. But actually God has set it up that way. There's still a morality. There's still a right and wrong. You don't have these same objections that I've just made about uh, there being no standards. You can be a Christian, believe in right and wrong, even believe in a heaven and a hell, and yet still embrace science and all the modern findings of modern science. Doesn't that lessen the uh, inherent tension, the cognitive dissonance? So many of our young people, when they go off to university, they're shown all this science, and because they believe evolution is true... They have to give up Christianity. Well, what if you could say, no, you can believe in evolution and you can believe in Christianity? I mean, in some ways, it's an attractive option. In some ways. Uh, and there are a number of Christians. Dr. Francis Collins, he head, was head of the Genome Project. He's now director of the National Institutes of Health. He self-identifies as an evangelical Christian believes in the divinity of Christ, the birth, uh, the death, and resurrection of Christ in heaven and hell, and yet he embraces evolution as the way that God created. Another man, John Walton, is an Old Testament expert from Wheaton College, uh, recently promoted by Spectrum magazine. A lot of Adventist intellectuals are being attracted to this kind of creation story. Does it... Matter. Does it matter? Well, 
let's look for a bit at um, what some of these, call them new creationists, new theistic evolutionists, uh, say. They claim that, in fact, young earth, literal six-day creation is a modern interpretation of the Bible. Um, that the reformers, they argue, were much more flexible on this and were willing to read their Bible symbolically or allegorically. And so since we're looking at the reformers, I wanted to talk about this claim for a few minutes. What the, the John Waltons and the Francis Collins are confusing is it's true. We've talked a little bit about v- beliefs in verbal inspiration of Scripture and how this was a fundamentalist creation of the 19th and early 20th centuries as conservative Christians try to respond to the new claims of scientific empiricism and the requirement that things be absolutely certain before you believe them and demonstrable. Certain Christians took the Bible and tried to kind of reconfigure it in a way that would meet this new standard of scientific certainty that more recently we've come to understand that science itself can't meet. But they took this and they came up with a doctrine of verbal inspiration of the scriptures that God dictated every single word in the original autographs and if we could find those, we would have the perfect Bible. But the irony is is that these verbal inspirationists, most of them, the leading ones at Princeton University, this wasn't just a bunch of rednecks running around in the woods of Alabama. It was, you've all heard of Princeton University, Warfield and Hodge and some leading Presbyterian theologians, very smart guys, worked this out. But they were also familiar with science. And they uh, believed in verbal inspiration, but they also uh, believed in that the days of the week were symbolic for periods of time. So it wasn't a question of being able to read the Bible hyper-literally. Um, But this notion of verbal inspiration was true. Uh, It was a new thing that they had come up with. Walton and Collins are right in one sense. St. Augustine, the 5th century Christian, uh, who wrote many famous Christian works, including The City of God, also wrote about the book of Genesis. And he did believe that the seven-day creation was written allegorically, that it didn't happen in seven days. But often, this is all you're told, that it somehow implied that he believed in millions of years. Well, if you go and read him, yeah, he didn't believe it took God seven days because God could do it in an instant. And he believed God did it in one instant and then described it as a seven-day sequence for our minds. Now, there's a lot of things Augustine says that we don't believe and accept, and this is one of them. But the point is that even Augustine, who read this allegorically, didn't say it stood for long periods of time. He said it happened in one moment. Now, Luther, the Protestant reformers, were very clear about reading Scripture in a more literal and a more straightforward way. And this is what Luther says in his commentary on the book of Genesis. He, Moses, called a spade a spade. He employs the terms day and evening without allegory, just as we customarily do we assert that Moses spoke in the literal sense, not allegorically or figuratively, i.e., that the world was, with all its creatures, created within six days as the words read. If we do not comprehend the reason for this, let us remain pupils and leave the job of teacher to the Holy Spirit. 
So the Protestant reformers specifically considered the argument that this was allegory, and they rejected it. They said, no, we believe that this is a literal six-day creation. Um, Luther continues, it is not true, as several heretics and other vulgar persons allege, that God created everything in the beginning and then let nature take its own independent course so that all things now spring into being of their own power. Boy, this is a description of theistic evolution, essentially, isn't it? That God started it and then it just unfolded. Luther considers this and says, no. Thereby they put God on a level with a shoemaker or a tailor. This not only contradicts scripture, but it runs counter to experience. It's interesting, Luther appealing to experience here for those who were at my first presentation, an example of Luther saying that experience can be important. Here's Calvin. Here the error of those is manifestly refuted who maintain that the world was made in a moment. For it is too violent a cavil to contend that Moses distributes the work which God perfected at once into six days for the mere purpose of conveying instruction. So he's arguing against Augustine here. Augustine says God spreads it out over six days. Calvin says, no, let us rather conclude that God himself took the space of six days for the purpose of accommodating his works to the capacity of men. So you have these early reformers specifically considering the question of is it allegory, is it not real? No. They reject this for a variety of reasons, including theological and experiential. Now, it should be no surprise that the question of creation is under attack in the last days. We have the scripture in 2 Peter 3, 3-7. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. The key principle of evolution was uniformitarianism, right? That what we see today now happening is what has happened before, and we can only understand past processes by things currently happening. This was actually adopted before the theory of evolution was. Before Darwin's theory came along, geological theories of an old earth and of geological processes that explained the surface of the earth happening in the same way in the past as we see it in the present had been adopted. And Darwin really borrowed this idea from geology and brought it into biology. He didn't invent it. And of course, a denial of the flood is in Second Peter. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and, by the water, and, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the denial of creation isn't just about something in the past, It's about something in the future, too, because creation is connected with the flood, which is connected with the judgments of God, which is connected with the accountability for human action and behavior. And uh, it was a great relief to many 19th and 20th century minds to remove God from the scene because then it made anything I want to do possible with no accountability. And I think it's no accident that the first angel's message 
talks about this question of creator. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. So the gospel is connected very intimately with the idea of God as creator. We believe that this judgment hour message that I've just read began resounding in what year? 1843, 1844. The hour of God's judgment has come is referring to 1844. Did you know that Darwin wrote the first manuscript of his Origin of the Species and completed it in 1844? It wasn't published until 15 years later. He thought it was too explosive and controversial, and he sat on it till 1859. But it was finished in 1844. Now notice, the, uh, we are often referring to the references to the fourth commandment in this text, aren't we? Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. Is this an exact quote from the fourth commandment? Made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. What does the fourth commandment actually say? who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Now, John was on Patmos, and maybe he didn't have his Bible with him, but I can assure you that as a good Jew, he probably memorized the entire Torah. He undoubtedly knew the Ten Commandments. Why did he use this language? He changed the quote, didn't he? He didn't say the sea and all that in this. He says the sea and the springs of the water. The springs of water, if you look back in the Old Testament, refers to that which was broken up to bring the flood. And so here in this short passage, he both encapsulates creation and the flood. And the flood is the judgment, and it's a judgment message that's here. And so this is um, John's reference. Now, it's important to know, when we're talking about creation that the reason we believe in creation, a literal view of creation, is not because we are so literalistically minded that we can't read symbolism in the Bible when it's there. In fact, think about this for a moment. Who are the experts on apocalyptic prophecy in the evangelical world? If not, that's the book we claim, Daniel and Revelation. It's all about symbols. We are very capable of reading the Bible symbolically where it's called for. Mark Knoll is a well-known Protestant historian who I happen to study with uh, for my PhD. He wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and he accuses Adventists of being overly committed to literalism and not being willing to think about things. And I've been able to chastise him on this point and point out that his own theological forebearers, uh, he is a Calvinist, and so he looks favorably on Princeton University and Warfield and Hodge, who were conservative theologians back in the um, late 19th century and early 20th century. Warfield and Hodge were the ones that created this verbal inspiration, inerrancy, and the Adventist Ellen White didn't accept that. We were, if you will, can you believe it, slightly more liberal, moderate, would be a better way of putting it, on our understanding of Scripture, that it was thought inspiration, that it wasn't dictation. And yet, Warfield and Hodge were willing to accept symbolic understanding of the days of creation. 
Because the most important thing in interpreting and understanding creation is not necessarily the literal words of Genesis 1 and 2, though that is important, and I believe those best understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 is that it is a history. It's written as a chronology. It's written in a way that suggests we're talking about real events in real time. But there's a greater commitment um, to some larger concerns that we have. We've also been accused of believing in a literal creation because uh, Ellen White believed in it. Right? It's either because you read the Bible so literally or you're so just wedded to Ellen White. And uh, Ron Numbers in his book Creationist says this. But George McCready Price, the great Adventist geologist who kept flood creationism alive in the 1920s and 30s, was very influential in the evangelical community. Many of you have heard of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum in Kentucky. They're also building this full replica of the ark. Um, ICR, these various evangelical groups, they all owe their roots to Adventism. Now, they're not very open about this because they're a little embarrassed by it, but uh, Whitcomb and Morris wrote a book. These were evangelicals in the 1960s and 70s who wrote a book, The Genesis Flood, that brought back alive to evangelical Christianity the important truths of creation. They relied heavily on the work of George McCready Price, and they try to distance themselves from him because of the Sabbath issue, and they don't want to bring that out. Um, but to say that Ellen, it was our commitment to Ellen White that kept it alive, the evangelicals didn't accept it from us because of Ellen White. They accepted it from us because of scriptural interpretation and the, geo, the geological evidence that we had. They rejected Ellen White. It had nothing to do with Ellen White. So why does Adventism embrace evolution? And I want to propose that there were important theological reasons that caused us to continue to embrace it initially and are very important today as some people seem to be tempted by versions of theistic evolution. What are those theological reasons? Well, one that people very obviously think of is the Sabbath the notion of a seven-day literal cycle of the week. If the Sabbath is based on something that's not there, where is the basis and foundation of the Sabbath? Now, I'm not sure this is an absolutely... It's absolutely impossible to keep the Sabbath and believe in theistic evolution. There are various Jews that are somewhat liberal scientifically that keep the Sabbath, but they're keeping it as a matter of tradition, of their racial, ethnic, cultural heritage not so much as a matter of biblical historical truth. And it's one thing to continue a practice that you've grown up with or been given with even after the historical basis has been removed, but to persuade people who don't already believe in it that you should do something that's based on something that in fact didn't really happen is going to be very difficult. Now the atonement is a second reason. If sin came in before Adam fell. Because evolution, does everyone get this, that evolution only works if there's death involved? That you have to weed things out of the population for other things to flourish. So evolution requires death. And if evolution leads up to the process of the creation of humanity, you have to have death before Adam's sin and so what happens when um, uh, Christ comes, if Christ comes to replace Adam, but 
sin has already and death have already death has occurred before sin, then this connection between death and sin that the Bible seems to teach is decoupled, and the atonement doesn't necessarily do away with death. Maybe it only it only does away with sin. But I think the third and most important reason that Adventists have not embraced theistic evolution and, and really cannot is because of the great controversy theme that I just finished looking at in my last session. These other names that I mentioned, especially John Walton from Wheaton College, the evangelicals who are embracing uh, theistic evolution tend to be, it's not always this way, but they tend to be Calvinists. They tend to come from a theological tradition that is not intent on developing what theologians like to call a theodicy. What is a theodicy? A theodicy is a defense of God and his character. In Milton's terms, to justify the ways of God to men, that God is fair and good and loving. The Calvinist says, no, God is powerful and sovereign. You should submit to him, and whatever he does is fair. The Arminians, which is our free will heritage, say, no, God didn't create evil. God wants to be fair. His primary characteristic is love. And there's a great controversy theme to show that, in fact, he is loving and fair and good and righteous. And if you read the book of Revelation, there are these hymns in the book of Revelation with a constant refrain of God's judgments being good and righteous and just and fair. And the point of the history that's shown in the book of Revelation, I believe, is to reveal these truths about God. And what does theistic evolution do to this? Well, if you're a Calvinist, it doesn't do very much because you're not too concerned about theodicy. And if you believe that God creates most people for the purpose of seeing them burn in hell forever, then what's a little pain and suffering in creation? It's not really much of an issue, and it's not much that you're trading away, just the literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2, to make peace with the world of science. Now, let me pause there for a moment to point out that trying to make peace with science isn't always a bad thing. In fact, Adventists have done it at a very important point in time. Does science ever tell us that our understanding of the Bible is wrong? Right? Correctly understood, science and the Bible should always be consistent. But sometimes, does science tell us that our view of the Bible is wrong? Do we have an example from our own church history in that? You have an example? <laughs> the, what happened on October 23, 1844? We realized that Jesus hadn't come, right? So our ancestors, theological ancestors, had to change their theology. Do we ever change theology in the light of science? Yes, we do. When there's something as clear as the nose on your face, we said Christ was going to come based on Daniel 8.14. I say we, the larger Millerite movement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But, and when it didn't happen, we had to go back to the Bible. It didn't mean that the Bible was wrong, right? It meant that our understanding of the Bible was wrong. So again, it's an example of experience modifying our understanding of Scripture. And we went back to Scripture and got a better understanding of it. And so my friends, including Mark Knoll and other evangelicals, would just say, well, that's what we're doing. We think the evidence from science is so overwhelming. 
and we can make these small accommodations in our theology, and the two can live happily together. Well, I think that Mark Knoll and his friends put too much stock in the evidence for something that apparently happened millions and millions of years ago. We just don't see evolution happening today in the macro sense. All we have is a geological column, and I'll show you some evidence regarding that in a few minutes. But on the other side of the equation, on the theological side of it, as Adventists, we would have to give up a lot, lot more than John Walton or Mark Knoll or their Reformed friends are having to give up. We're having to give up this moral government of God understanding of the universe and of creation. It's like the center scheme of our theology. It's like giving away the, the crown jewels, if you will, of our theological system because of certain scientific findings, which if you look at them closely, are much more ambiguous and sketchy. And yeah, there's problems on both sides, but there really are problems on both sides. And evolution is far and away from being the slam dunk that the modern media wants to suggest that it is. This reason, I think, is why Ellen White said some very strong things about not just materialistic evolution, but theistic evolution. It was a theory that was around in her day, and she directly addressed it. And this is what she said. She called it the worst kind of infidelity. The infidel supposition that the events of the first week required seven vast and definite periods for their accomplishment strikes directly at the foundation of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, it makes indefinite obscure that which God has made very plain. It is the worst kind of infidelity, for with many who profess to believe the record of creation, it is infidelity in disguise. It charges God with commanding men to observe the week of seven literal days and commemorating seven indefinite periods. And this is unlike his dealings with mortals and is an impeachment of his wisdom. So she's pointing out that such an act would be against, is unlike his dealings with mortals, would be against the character of God. And I shared in the previous uh, lecture uh, comments where she talks about the importance of God's moral government. Um, since the fall of man, God's moral government and his grace are inseparable. They go hand through hand through all dispensations. John Baldwin, a colleague of mine at the seminary, says that theistic evolution denies the doctrine of sin as the cause of physical death, which has as its basis in the historical truth of the fall. It thereby destroys the basis of the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement and redemption of sinners. And so death and the sin, now some will argue that animal death occurs before human death, uh, but if you read Romans, and I won't have time to do that now, but Romans 8, 18, 23 connects animal death with the entrance of sin brought by humanity into the world. Um, I need to get on to... Infidelity prevails, Ellen White said, to an alarming extent, not in the world merely, but in the church. Many have come to deny doctrines that are the very pillars of the Christian faith. You know, there are some who say, well, we can be flexible on this one, we have a big church. But Ellen White identifies the great facts of creation as being connected with the fall of man, the atonement, and the perpetuity of God's law as being the very pillars of the Christian faith. 
And so I've already mentioned this about uh, Warfield and Hodge and the determinists and the fact that we're being called uh, to trade in our theological crown jewels on the great controversy theme. We were willing to change our view on the sanctuary because Christ didn't come on October 22, 1844. But what about the fossil record? Is that so clear that we would be forced to change our view about creation and evolution? I have some quotes from Stephen Jay Gould. He's the late Harvard paleontologist and advocate of evolution. His specialty was the geological column. Now, there are lots of people, if you speak to most scientists, they think that the convincing um, evidence for evolution is in somebody else's field. You know, if you speak to the biologist, he'll say, yeah, we don't see macroevolution happening today, but it's in the fossil record. The geologists know about it. And the and uh, geneticists will say, well, there's some evidence here, but really it's somebody else who has the evidence. And everyone usually points to the geological column and the paleontologists. Well, here's the leading, was the leading paleontologist at Harvard. This is what he said about the fossil record. The history of most fossil species, Gould admits, includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Now, gradualism is the idea that creatures gradually evolved over time, Right? Stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking pretty much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. So there's some minor changes that don't go any particular direction and don't seem to connect, in fact, with new species or new kinds. Two, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors, it appears all at once and fully formed. So Stephen Gould says the fossil record shows two things. It shows species suddenly appearing, coming from nowhere, having no history, appearing the same way for a period of time, and then disappearing. So the place where evolution is supposed to be seen, if you speak to the leading evolutionary scientists, they say, well, we can't really find it here. So Stephen Jay Gould came up with a new theory of evolution called punctuated equilibrium, where he said things suddenly appear and evolution happens much more quickly than we realized before. Well, none of this was supported by the other sciences, the geneticists and the biologists, and so he was very much on the defensive in trying to defend this, but he was undertaking it because, in fact, the evidence of the fossil record didn't support these claims. So the fossil record is far away from being anything like Christ not coming on October 22, 1844, and us waking up on October 23. Given the fossil record also holds challenges for creationists, but no more so than for evolutionists who must wrestle with the Cambrian explosion. Supposedly, 530 million years ago, nearly all the phyla suddenly appear. There's an almost entire lack of intermediate species. There's no meaningful reason for the push for complexity which evolution requires. In fact, more complex things have greater difficulty surviving. You know, if there's a nuclear holocaust, the, ants, the, the world will be taken over by ants, I understand. Uh, or, or maybe green fungi. You know, less complicated things survive more easily. Uh, human babies require nurture and attention for far more years than I would have thought before I had children. Uh, but it seems to be 16 or 18 rather than just two or three. Um, 
utter absence of any meaningful mechanism for the formation of life or the first divisible cell. It just isn't there. Now, I've got just a few minutes left, and I want to talk a little bit directly about what's at stake in our church in wrestling over this question. And there's two concerns. There's the liberal side and taking science more seriously than we should, but there's also a fundamentalist side and resorting to a creedalism to deal with our problems of, of origins. And there's some lessons from history here, and I'm going to have to move through this quickly. Um, so we have some problems, and I've already gone into what I think is at stake the theologically, and that we need to... Ellen White was clear that we should... She had a problem at Battle Creek with false sciences. She wrote this in 1899. We need to guard continually against the sophistry in regard to geology and other branches of science falsely so-called, which have not one semblance of truth. The theories of great men need to be carefully sifted of the slightest trace of infidel suggestions. One tiny seed sown by teachers in our schools, if received by the students, will raise a harvest of unbelief. The Lord has given all the brilliancy of intellect that man possesses, and it should be devoted to his service. Um, she actually wrote in the 1904, I was bidden to warn our people on no account to send their children to Battle Creek to receive an education because delusive scientific theories will be presented in the most seducing forms. She said this on several occasions. While Battle Creek was an Adventist institution and college, the prophet of the church said, do not send your children there. And I think it's appropriate that if we are aware that this kind of error is being openly taught to young people, that we also should speak out in caution and concern. She talked about selling that school and planting a school that could be built upon the plan which God has specified. So we have some very clear warnings and guidance as to what should be done in defending against liberal extremes. But what about the other side? We want to tighten up the wording of belief system number six, because though most of us read it in a way which seems to talk about a six-day literal creation a few thousand years ago, some people seem to find ways of reading days in other ways, and so we want to close all the loopholes we can. And it reminds me of something, I don't know if you know who Clarence Schilt is, a pastor in Loma Linda for many years, who talks about this in his relationship seminars that you're never capable of sinning so much as when you are right. When you're right in an argument with your spouse, it gives you all sorts of justifications to be unreasonable and mean, and, <clears throat> and you shouldn't do it. What would changing the wording of belief number six accomplish? Is there really any doubt that the World Church believes and upholds a literal seven-day creation week a few thousand years ago? What is... A creed. Does Adventism have a creed? We only have one creed, and that is the Bible. So what is the 28 fundamental statements of belief? How does that differ from a creed? It's open to revision. It's something that represents our present statement of understanding, but which we will revise as the Holy Spirit gives us further insight. It's not meant to be an impeccable statement of truth to which 
We hold everyone in the church accountable. Are there people in your church who don't hold to all 28 fundamental beliefs that you know of? Probably a few in mine. Do you, do you, do you think you should expel them from your church? Now, you probably may not make them Sabbath school teachers, and I would hope that if you're going to teach at Andrews University or one of our other colleges, that you will agree to uphold those beliefs because they do represent our understandings of, uh, of now. But we can treat these statements as a kind of creed. I think we have everything we need in place doctrinally to be able to require a support of a seven-day literal young earth creation. I think in some ways we're in danger of saying we're going to fix this problem by defining our orthodox even more clearly and then using it as a club on everyone we can find who, de- who deviates from it. I think we should hold people accountable in positions of authority who are being paid to teach what we believe. Don't get me wrong. Um, but we have lessons from history that having a detailed orthodoxy, we can become so focused on that that it detracts from our ethics and our practice. Do you know where the widest basis of young earth creationism is in America? It's in the Bible Belt South, Baptists and others, uh, where the church was formed to support slavery and racism, and there were fierce defenders of young earth creation that was viewed as upholding the separation of the races. The belief that God created everything as it is, where it is, and it shouldn't deviate from that. This is a fundamentalist view of creation that Adventism doesn't hold. We do believe in a young earth creation. But another example of this, you know about apartheid in South Africa? The system of apartheid in South Africa forbade the teaching of evolution into the 1980s because the doctrine of creation and the separation of the races was viewed as a foundation for the apartheid system of government in South Africa. Can we become so detailed and committed to a literal understanding of the Bible that we miss the spirit of the Bible teaching and how it's supposed to affect our lives? It's creedalism run amok, creedalism used to justify existing structures and establishments of society. It's not, in fact, consistent with a healthy understanding of a doctrine of creation. We focus on the letter at the expense of the spirit. We insist on a 6,000-year-old universe. Now, this isn't Adventist, of course, but it's fundamentalist. The young earth creationists in the larger Christian community don't just have a 6,000-year-old earth. They have a 6,000-year-old universe. Everything in it was created 6,000 years ago. Do we believe that as Adventists? Where, where does the great controversy theme come from? Where is heaven, the unfallen worlds? All of this existed, we believe, prior to the earth. But because of the influence of fundamentalism, actually there are some Adventists who are starting to sort of adopt and accept and embrace a 6,000-year universe theory. Some, some of us insist on a 4,004 creation date as Usher set down. Um, Ellen White says a number of times about 6,000 years, around 6,000 years, not tens of thousand years. But I think to try to be dogmatic on 6,000 as opposed to, say, 7,000 is perhaps going too far. If we tie up belief number six with greater precision, 
Will that actually help us deal with the creation issues that we face as a church presently? We're so focused on the question of 6,000 years and seven literal days, and I do believe seven literal days is important, don't get me wrong, but I think there are some messages from creation that we continue to overlook, and what might those be? Well, what about questions of life, the image of God, marriage and family, the stewardship of creation? Do we talk about these more practical issues as much as we do about the age of the earth and the days of creation? In some Adventist hospitals, there appear to continue to be elective abortion. Issues of Adventist young people voluntarily bearing arms in the military. Uh, speak and oppose unjust wars, which seem to be most of them these days. What about the torture of human beings made in the image of God? Are these not creation problems and issues that all too often we don't have very much to say about because we're so caught up in arguing about a 6,000-year period of time? Assassination of terrorists, including Americans, by decisions of the executive branch. Imprisonment without trial or due process of humans made in the image of God. Are we involved in defending the rights of children to a mother and a father, which is also a creation ordinance and account? Stewardship of nature in response to global warming. We have church statements on a number of these issues, but they tend to sit on the church's website, and it doesn't filter down to the laity for some reason. Do we need a more precise statement of our creation beliefs to get us to act more vigorously and passionately in these areas of creation care and concern? Or will a more precise statement make us feel that we have solved our creation problem and become complacent about these true creation questions? Now, the most important creation question, I think, is the one of personal recreation. One of my favorite texts as I became a new Adventist believer and, and, and Christian was that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That becoming a Christian doesn't involve forcing yourself to do all those things you don't really want to do and forcing yourself not to do the things you'd really like to do. It involves a change of heart and person and being that the things you previously found boring are now exciting. In fact, more exciting than the things that you used to like. And this is the original creation war, the conflict over our becoming a new creation. And this is sometimes the saddest thing in the creation wars in our church. I see blogs and comments coming from evolutionists and supposed creationists alike that at times are full of bile and spite. Sometimes we can argue for creation in a manner that makes it seems like we actually believe in evolution, the survival of the fittest that we are going to overpower our opponents. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people have said he or she must be a creationist because they argue so fairly and charitably and kindly and winsomely. Maybe there is something to what he or she is saying. We need to pray that we can engage the creation discussion in our church in a way that honors God, his moral government and his character of love and shows that we, in fact, are a part of his new creation. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.